2: On March 5th, 1902, a boy was born in Waynesboro, Pennsylvania. That boy didn't know it then, but he would revolutionize the bow hunting industry and make archery a pastime that people wanted to bring back into the mainstream. There was something different about this boy. He had a lot of skill and he mastered many different things in his lifetime. But out of all the things he mastered, the most important of all those was to create a movement. Of movement that took archery from our own ancestral roots and brought it back into today's mainstream. From that day on, bow hunting became one of the norms in hunting and was one of the best ways for people to take game. Because of this man, we today have a legacy of bow hunters and bow hunting that have engulfed our country and many more. On today's show, the history of Fred Bear. This episode was created today by BHP Media inside archery and bear archery we thank you for your support and we also thank them for their contributions to this amazing episode of the one and only fred bear working on this project wasn't going to be easy and i knew that but i really wanted to bring something back to the people to to hear of fred bear because i worried that fred bear um was getting lost in translation. Sure, a lot of people have heard of Fred Bear, but youth have not. And I thought it was really important to bring that back to the people to understand it. So what I did is I reached out. I reached out to people in the industry and I tried to gain as much knowledge as I could about Fred. And I I also took a lot of that in and tried to put some of that into this episode for you guys to listen to and
3: take in. Hello, I'm Fred Bear. I spent most of my life in the outdoors. Pretty much with a bow and arrow. You'd be surprised how much craftsmanship, hand craftsmanship, and good old-fashioned know-how go into the making of bows and arrows. Our plants just a short ways through the woods here. Come on along, and we'll show you how we do it. A look back
1: at the legacy of the father of modern bow hunting. Many consider Fred Bear the father of modern bow hunting. Even thirty years after his passing, Fred Bear is one of the most iconic and respected names in the industry. After all, his contributions to archery and bow hunting are countless, and a company bearing his name continues to produce top-tier equipment today. But what exactly warrants a title like the father of modern bow hunting? Well, it's simple. One could argue that the industry as we know it simply wouldn't exist without the achievements of Fred Bear. Here's a look at exactly why that is so. It's strange how easy it is to take archery and bow hunting for granted these days, especially for those of us in the industry. Shooting a bow simply feels natural, and although bow hunting numbers might not be as strong as we'd like, there are still millions of people in the US who shoot archery, and that number continues to grow. Something special happened in North America to make archery what it is today. Granted, humans were hunting with bows and arrows long before the most ancient societies emerged, but archery was rendered obsolete for hunting and warfare by the invention of the gun near the end of the 1300s. If it weren't for a few stubborn cultures, archery would have become a thing of the past, a forgotten relic. England in particular continued to practice and revere archery, turning it into a cultural pastime. That affinity for archery was transferred to England's 13 North American colonies, where groups like the United Bowmen of Philadelphia formed and competed with target archery. Although archery was culturally ingrained, participation in the U.S. was mainly focused on target shooting and fairly sparse in terms of popularity. Guns were still the weapon of choice for hunting. Native American tribes even saw the obvious advantages of firearms and began favoring them over the bow and arrow for hunting and warfare. Archery was still considered inadequate for harvesting game, that is, until the early 1900s. In such a massive country, certain small, remote tribes remained isolated from Europeans much longer than others. Such was the case with the Yahi tribe in California, who remained undiscovered until the late 1800s. After a series of violent clashes with settlers, the remaining few members of the Yahi retreated into the remote wilderness where they remained until the last surviving member, known as Ishii, emerged from the woods in 1911. Alright guys, it is
2: stretch break. Let's take a minute to thank our amazing sponsors of the BHP Podcast, Crossman, Vanguard Outdoors, Skullhooker... Rax inc stealth cam and beyond the ears some of great great products from these companies check them out when you get a minute and don't forget to check out the boner planet patreon account to get exclusive videos and content and much more now on to the show
1: Having spent his entire life hiding deep in the Sierra Mountains, Ishii was completely uninfluenced by European culture and still practiced the bow hunting techniques that had been passed down to him by generations of his ancestors. His doctor, Saxton Pope, took great interest in Ishii and his traditional hunting techniques and the two became great friends. Saxton Pope and his friend, Arthur Young, embraced the all but lost sport of bow hunting. They combined the recreational shooting imprinted by British culture with Native American techniques developed for the North American continent. They made headlines for exploits like hunting grizzly bears in Yellowstone with handmade bows, and they made films of their hunts to promote the sport. One of those films, titled Alaskan Adventure, caught the eye of Fred Bear. The rest, as they say, is history. An interesting chain of events led to Bear's introduction to bow hunting. What if England never preserved and passed on its love for archery? What if he, she never emerged from the woods? What if Fred Bear never saw Alaskan adventure? Lucky for us, those things happened. Also, lucky for us, Fred Bear started his own chain of events that further proliferated archery and bow hunting. Bear was born on March 5, 1902, in Waynesboro, Pennsylvania. Growing up in a somewhat rural area, hunting was a natural activity, and Bear killed his first deer with a rifle at age 13. In addition to his introduction to hunting, Bear's family also imparted a fascination for craftsmanship and advertising. His grandfather was a skilled salesman for a manufacturing company, and his father was a talented machinist. Those influences were probably part of the reason Bear moved to Detroit at age 21 to work in the auto industry. Bear combined aspects of his father and grandfather's professions and became an expert pattern maker and leathersmith with a comfortable grasp on marketing. He also worked extensively with glue, another experience that would pay off down the road. In 1926, Baer became the plant manager for Jensen Manufacturing Company, an automotive manufacturer that made spare tire covers. A year later, he saw Alaskan adventure, which sparked his interest in archery. He made his first bow that same year, and he also had a chance encounter with Arthur Young, further amplifying his newfound interest. Bear quietly improved his own bow design and practiced shooting as the plant manager of Jensen Manufacturing Company, but the beginning of the Great Depression turned his world upside down in 1929. The Manufacturing Company was hit hard, and on top of that, the building burned down in 1933, rendering Bear unemployed. Taking this stroke of bad luck as an opportunity to focus more on bow-making, Bear pooled his money with his friend Charles Piper, who also lost his job to the fire. The two used the $1,200 they had between them to buy some second-hand sewing machines and other equipment and rent a small garage in Detroit. That enterprise was called the Bear Products Company, and although the main focus was making silkscreen banners for advertisements, Bear used the equipment to continue making archery gear. It might not have been official, but bear archery was essentially born. Although Bear went on his first bow hunt in 1927, he didn't tag a whitetail with an arrow until 1935. The challenge only increased Bear's resolve, and it cast hunting with a gun in a different light. This is how Bear described one of his unspectacular hunts with a rifle. "'I grew up a gun hunter,' he said in a 1985 interview. I shot a deer in 1933 up in the Upper Peninsula that dressed 285 pounds, the biggest deer I ever saw. And it was so easy. That opening morning, I walked up to the draw, and there he was looking at me, and I was looking at him. I shot him, and he went down, and that's when the work began. So I thought bow hunting would be a little bit better. Bear's bow hunting success took time to develop but he was undoubtedly an expert target shooter. Bear won first place at the Michigan State Target Archery Championship in 1934. Over the following years, he won dozens of other tournaments. During this time frame, Bear was still only making bows for himself and friends, but that's not to say he wasn't innovating and trying to grow the sport he loved. Bear organized Michigan's first bow hunting season in 1937, And that same year, he patented his first archery glove. He was becoming a well-known and respected member of the archery community, and demand was growing for his incredible products. To meet that demand, Bear hired a master boyer named Nels Grumley, and the two started producing and selling archery gear under the name Bear Products by Grumley. By 1939, developing and selling archery products was Bear's primary focus, And the Bear Product Company was split in two in 1940. Bear took over the archery side, and Piper continued overseeing the silkscreen advertising business. It's worth pointing out that keeping a business running during the Great Depression was no easy task. Bear's tenacity and knack for advertising were no doubt key in this achievement, and those qualities also helped Bear's archery only enterprise develop and grow. Bear once quipped that he not only had to make a product, but create a market for it, too. To build that market, Bear used his target shooting skills to captivate crowds across the Midwest. He would perform trick shots on stage and invite attendees to try out his bows afterwards. Bear helped popularize bow hunting by submitting pictures of a deer or bear he downed with a bow to newspapers, which often made the front page. Bear also followed in the footsteps of his heroes, Pope and Young, and produced his first hunting film in 1942. Bear went on to make many more films and TV appearances in order to grow the sport, and the effort was clear. Archery was becoming more commonplace as a sport and hunting tool. Meanwhile, his innovative spirit remained strong. Bear filed a patent in 1946 for a revolutionary new quiver that was attached to the bow instead of the archer's back or hip. By 1947, the increased demand for Bear bows warranted a larger building, so Bear relocated his facility to Grayling, Michigan. Resistant to mass producing bows with machines instead of by hand, Grumley departed and the company was renamed to Bear Archery. Despite Grumley's reservations, this new approach allowed Bear bows to get more advanced and reach a larger number of people. Popular models like the Grizzly, Polar, and Kodiak were being produced at an incredible rate by 1949, and that's also the same year Bear began incorporating fiberglass cloth on his bow's limbs. This was a breakthrough to say the least. Fiberglass was incredibly strong and flexible. It could endure a great deal of compression and stress without losing its original shape. Baer's time in the automotive industry was key in the discovery, implementation, and improvement of this new material. In 1949, fiberglass was only available in a crisscross pattern. That worked well for limbs, but it caused problems in other areas on the bow. To remedy this, Baer began developing unidirectional fiberglass, which he patented and put into production in 1951. More than half a century later, unidirectional fiberglass is still commonly used in bow construction. It's interesting how Bear was perhaps more enamored by the challenge of improving bow hunting gear than the challenge of bow hunting itself. Bear encountered many unexpected problems in his bow hunting career, and he was dead set on finding solutions. One great example of this occurred after Bear went on a hunting trip to Alaska. His luggage and the longbow it contained was lost during the journey. A left-handed shooter, Bear was unable to use his companion's gear and the trip was a waste. Or so it seemed. That experience, in addition to other hunts with broken bows and equipment failures, inspired Bear to develop a more compact and user-friendly bow, which eventually led to another innovation that's still widely used today. The takedown recurve. It took many years of trial and error until Bear perfected his design in 1970. Coincidentally, this is right around when bow hunting was hitting its stride in the United States. Fred Bear was a household name for a whole new generation of bow hunters, and for good reason. Bear's breakthrough developments and promotion of the sport made bow hunting more appealing and its equipment more effective. He helped pave the way for other innovators and that in turn made the industry we have today it's difficult to speculate what would have happened if fred bear didn't accomplish all that he did in the name of archery his passion for the sport along with his profound desire to improve archery gear helped build the industry's foundation and his approach still serves as a blueprint for today's industry leaders on top of all that One of Bear's most admirable and resonating qualities was his spiritual affinity for archery and the outdoors. There are many Fred Bear quotes that can inspire hunters and non-hunters alike, so it seems fitting to end on one that sums up his outlook perfectly. I hunt deer because I love the entire process, the preparations, the excitement, and the sustained suspense of trying to match my wood lore against the finely honed instincts of these creatures. On most days I spent in the woods, I came home with an honestly earned feeling that something good has taken place. It makes no difference whether or not I got anything. It has to do with how the day was spent.
4: If you want to share your story on the Bowhunter Planet Planet podcast for the Women Who Hunt series, drop drop us a line. line. Sharing your story with others helps to inspire and build the outdoor heritage for younger generations. The most important thing we can do to help conserve this great heritage is to get the youth involved to build the future. Thanks for listening to the Bowhunter Planet podcast. Check out our ambassador program and join the hunt at bowhunterplanet.com. Now back to the show.
2: So as we dig deeper into Fred Bear's life and how Fred Bear created the Bear Archery Company, we decided to ask some questions to Bear Archery themselves.
4: My name is Jack Bordstein, and I'm the marketing manager here at Bear Archery. Bear Archery has an amazing story that just really needs to be told and understood. The hands of Fred Bear crafted and, and built these amazing bows early on in his career and Now, no one else in our hunting industry can really say that they are the father of modern bow hunting. Only Fred Bear can do that, and only Bear Archery has that history to tell.
2: What things has Bear Archery done to keep the legacy of Fred Bear alive?
4: Well, I would say Fred Bear is just very much alive in everything that we do. We still hold all of his values When we think about building new products, when we think about bringing a new bow to market, when we think about a new product and everything that we do, we think about how did Fred, would Fred Bear have done this? Would he have priced it like this? Would he have built it because of this? Would he have innovated? And I think we're doing all of those things. In addition to, man, if you come into our facilities, Fred Bear is the father of all that we uh, we started or all that he started and all that we care about every single day and we won't let that ever die. Fred Bear really is much alive in the sense of how we utilize him and use his guidance to, to build our of our products and our brands and, and everything that we do. Um, man, you know, Fred Bear's on the name of a bunch of our shirts. Um, you know, there's a gift tin that's possibly gonna come out that You know it it, it's it's amazing what um he can still do um when he when he's really even not here in the physical so um he he is much in everything that we do here at bear archery
2: how do you think fred bear would feel about today's archery industry
4: well honestly i think that fred bear would think first everything is a way overpriced why are we making the customer pay so much for a sport that we love to do and just want to share with others? And I think here at Bear Archery, we are still thriving with what Fred Bear started in building an affordable economical bow for customers to use That is that has great performance. But I really think... He might be okay with the industry where it's at, but he is an innovator. He is a he was a guy who just wanted to do the next best thing and try new things. And so I think he would go out there and he would try new things. He'd try to be an innovator and he would try to always answer to the customer's needs. And that's what we try to do at Bear and what he instilled, you know, in the company at an early early time frame and that's what we're still trying to do here today how do you think bear archery has changed the way people think of archery well honestly people wouldn't think about archery without bear um fred bear started it all Um, he's the father of modern bow hunting and people really wouldn't be able to think about bear archery now who's to say that somebody wouldn't have come along and, and, and done that or taken up that place we can't say but we're the only company that has a Fred Bear icon to live up to and you know he is just awesome when it comes to what he did for the sport what he tried to get people into um, all of those things it, it, it's amazing what he did and, you know, maybe I would say people right now are really thinking about bear archery. We have superior products in the Legend Series line of bows and in our, you know, just normal line of bows that we have that anybody can get They're awesome products, speed, performance, um, shootability, lightweight, all of those things can be answered by the name of bear. What makes bear archery a special place? Considering the fact that it was founded by Fred Bear. Well, here at Bear Archery, we foster so much just about what we like in products. Um, almost everyone here is a bow hunter, and they understand what bow hunters want. And we build products for bow hunters, and because we are bow hunters, we are outdoorsmen, we, are, we do care about... The land and preserving everything that Fred Bear started um, in our industry. And we just want um, the sport to live on because if we don't pass it down to our kids, if we don't get it going, you know, then we're not sure what will happen. But our goal is to provide superior products for customers at an extremely efficient value to them and just what we need to do as uh, a company to provide those things to our customers.
2: The interview with Bear Archie was really important because it really echoed and mimicked the lifestyle of Fred Bear, something that was extremely important to do to, to know that that legacy is living on and is living on in Bear Archery Company. This brings us to our next important person that knew Fred Bear, and that is Ted Nugent. The rock star and musician, activist, whatever you want to call him, Ted Nugent is out there. And we actually had a chance to interview Ted Nugent uh, a few months back on our podcast. And you can hear in Ted's voice when we ask the question about Fred Bear, it kind of changes. It, it goes from uh, uh, really excited to almost a little bit more sad and refined. And I think that that is extremely uh, real And I don't think that's mimicked or or faked by any means. And um, these comments from Ted are are extremely important because obviously he created one of the songs that will always live on and and helped to um, keep the name of Fred Bear strong. And that song is called Fred Bear. And it is absolutely amazing. It is something that people worship and listen to every time before their opening days and uh, while at hunting camp. So it's become um, kind of the anthem of bow hunting. Uh, here's Ted. So, Ted, hey, what's it like to have met and, and known Fred Bear? That's an amazing, <laughs> amazing thing. Say.
0: Wow, um, we, I could keep you uh, burning <laughs> Redwood Forest, a campfire wood, just uh, celebrating that incredible blessing and humbling experience. I was born in 1948. My dad was already a follower of Fred's. You know, my dad had a long bow, and this was pre-recurve, you know. Uh, it was right after Howard Hill and Pope and Young and and. Fred Bear witnessed their newsreel uh, bow hunting the hard way, and uh, it, it was just an explosive time of returning to this. What you and I are so turned on by the mystical flight at the arrow and getting close to game that Fred really perfected the promotional believability of abandoning the Weatherby long range tech, technology, which is a, a wonderful discipline unto itself. Mm-hmm. Sniper marksmanship is. A wonderful thing and i will always celebrate long hair long-range crosshairs but my dad with like so many were beginning to be turned on by this return to this spirit of the wild if i dare and so we would go north every October for the opener, October 1st in Michigan. By the time I was, geez, I was on my dad's back in, uh, in, in December, of, uh, 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 October of 1949. I was only 10 months old. Wow. So I consider that my first deer season, you know what I mean? Yeah, and I've, awesome. I've never missed a season. We'd stop at this little shack. It was a little, a little shack, like a, a, a stone garage, a cinder block garage in Grayling with this hand carved Bear Archery sign over the door. And I didn't I didn't know what was going on. I probably first entered Bear's little shop there when I was five or six years old. And uh I I I didn't know who he was, but I was already addicted to bows and arrows. I had a little bow and arrow and I'd shoot (laughs) river rats and chipmunks and in anything that crossed my path, I, was, I had a grand slam of songbirds by the time I was seven. <laughs> and, and so, when I finally got to be eight or nine years old, on our annual trips, and we'd stop at Lee. and Fett was often there, and he, he was, you know, uh, it, it inventing the laminating process. He had that crude lathe uh, there where he was uh, 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 laminating the wood and the oozing glass between the wood uh, 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 slats, and I, I was now starting to realize. This, this is Fred Bear. This this is the Chuck Berry of bow hunting, and and we would have cherry pie and chocolate milk at the Grayling restaurant. And every year, I couldn't wait to get up there because now he's on the cover of True Magazine and, and he's on TV shooting polar bears and grizzly bears. And I, I, I'm still I'm still after the chipmunk slam. So I'm fascinated by this guy, and he was such a kind man, such a gentleman, a real going guy. And, uh, we, I, I just looked up to him and he was real friendly and my dad eventually uh, represented a Swedish steel company and then sold the blue tempered rolled spring steel to Fred for the manufacturer of his bleeder blades for the bear razor head. Mm-hmm. So now it was, uh, it was not just a friendly bow hunting visit, but now it was a business visit and, and my dad would go hunting up there, uh, uh in uh, Harrison and in gray lane and gaylord every year with the bear team and now it's now it's a big shack it's still oh, yeah. just a, a small business but by the time i graduated uh from high school i moved to chicago with my family um my dad was transferred and so in 67 i came back i was there for two years and as soon as i came back i had the amboy dukes and i was starting to have long hair and Of course, Fred was scared to death of rock and roll. Because I looked like a hippie and he was afraid I might have turned into a hippie, but of course I was not. When Fred, you know, was concerned about this scary uh, rock and roll, and then people would tell him. and, And Fred told me this. He said, no, they came to me and said, no, Fred, everything Ted does, every time he does an interview, which I do thousands a year, he always promotes archery and the discipline, mm-hmm. and and he always talks about conservation. And he's always on the side of law and order instead of the hippies that call cops pigs. And yeah. so Fred thought, and we had a lot of talks about how I was completely opposite of the rest of the world of rock and roll. It was because yeah. of the bow and arrow discipline. It really was. Yeah. And we got to be close friends. And he, we'd go to uh, you know sporting events, Anderson Clinic together, and different sporting events. And I was just in awe that I get to hang out. And, and, and then he invited me to Grouse We'd hunt every year. I mean, and you wonder why I'm like this. I mean, <laughs> you know, why I'm like this? I've literally been to the mountaintop of of life. If your if your life is bow hunting like it is for us, yeah. there's just nowhere else to go. Mm. That I was. That was it. I hunted with Fred Bear. He's my buddy. Yeah. We called, and he called me and. We'd write letters, and it, come on, that's 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 the dream. So yeah. uh, I take that to heart, which is why when he died in April of '88, I had hunted with him in his last hunt at Grouse Haven in October of '87, and he literally put his hand on my shoulder, walking the, the, those beautiful trails at Grouse Haven, and he said, "I've heard the attacks on you. I hear these idiots in our industry that hate you." Because of the rock and roll, they don't know you. He looked me in the eyes and he said, You keep promoting bow hunting with that yeah. energy that you have. Yeah. He told me yeah. that every bow hunting event he went to, all the young people ever wanted to know was if he knew Ted Nugent. <laughs> 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 think no, of that man. insanity. <laughs> so he said, Boy, you're really you're really turning a lot of young people, rock and roll fans, you're turning them on to the hunting lifestyle. So that's why my critics and the haters, they, they, they roll off of me like personal hygiene yeah. off of Michael Moore's back. <laughs> it, 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 every time somebody says
2: something stupid about me, I just get bigger and badder and louder and prouder because Fred Bear told me that he liked the way I did it. This interview with Ted Nugent was definitely by far one of my favorite pieces of this project because you can really hear how much passion and love Ted has for Fred Bear creating a song that not only revolutionized an industry and a man, Ted Nugent created something that was going to help more and more people get outdoors.
0: And I knew
3: his name and it was good to see him again. Cause in the wind, he's still alive. Oh, Fred Bear, walk with me down the trails.
2: There's no doubt that Fred Bear em- embodied something different, something that we just didn't truly understand. Um, there's timeless pieces of footage of Fred Bearer. Um There's a complete DVD kit and set, which we're going to listen to a little bit of that audio from Bear Archery. But there's tons of books about this man. There's tons of great uh, friends he's had throughout the years that have written books about him uh, and that have really give you a glimpse into what he really did accomplish for us he really did give back and and I, I, I want to say that we, I proposed the question to the community and I asked uh, the question uh, what is Fred Bear to you I, it was interesting to see some of the responses from this question uh, but but you know I wasn't too surprised to see him so Rick Wood said the godfather of archery Steve Decker said He had the biggest influence on me as a young teenager. I learned to hunt with a bear magnum recurve bow. It came with a book about him. I read it and became hooked on bow hunting. What an adventure my life became. Thanks, Mr. Fred Bear. Eric Armbruster said, My youngest, four years ago, picked up Fred Bear for his Michigan Living Museum project in third grade. Fred revolutionized bow hunting and made it more obtainable for people to get involved. Jason Woolridge said, He has a positive influence on the bow hunting lifestyle from the earliest years of the sport. Manuel Bennett said, not only the maker of my first bow, which I still have, he inspired me to challenge myself more as an archer which rolled over into my daily life. Zach Spaniel said, he embodied the mentality that all hunters should have. Mike Cedar said, my dad worked for him at the factory in Grayling. I had the recurve now that Fred Bear gave him. Jeffrey Davis said, great hunter. Dwayne Keller said, idol, icon, and legendary. Dino Williams said, innovator in bow hunting. Some of the themes that you'll hear over and over in these comments on our Facebook page are legend, the master, icon, legendary, inspirational, great hunter, and much more. Fred Bear was just that to so many different people. These comments kept flooding in. And as much as I'd love to read them all, you can do it on our Facebook page. But to end this magical podcast that we really wanted to share with you guys, we're going to leave you with the voice of Fred Bear himself, talking to you about the history of the bow and arrow. This is a great piece, and you can watch the full video on the Fred Bear collection uh, from Bear Archery. So check it out, it's a four disc series, but I learned a lot about Fred Baer in and, and this video series, and also a couple different books that are out there for Fred that are all about his life, which we'll link below. As usual, thank you for your support in the Boner Plant Podcast, and thank you for listening. Enjoy this clip.
3: It's not uh, generally known just when um, Bozeman or actually was intended. They're made out of wood with bows and arrows, and they're not durable like other artifacts that can be dug up and aged. But uh, the the best guess that we've been able to come up with is some 50,000 years ago. How they were invented or who invented them, we don't know. But we think maybe the uh, little bow, the little bent stick with the string on it that was used to spin the, the little drill to make fire might have uh, uh, given the idea to somebody. It, it may even be that the little drill thing got uh, uh, misused and that the arrow, the bow shot the arrow or the little drill out of it and the idea came that way. It seems logical that that might uh, have been the way it was done. Um, Chinese made a bow... Uh, I'm not suggesting that the in Chinese invented, but they made a bowl that, with a handle, and they still make them that way. They only make ceremonial bowls nowadays, but the, the handle was about a third of the way up from the center, from the bottom of the bowl, from the lower end of the bowl. And uh, our best guess on that is that the first bowl was a, maybe a sprout from a tree or a stump and they put a string on it and because it was thicker and heavier at the bottom they had to hold it lower and that may have suggested that all bows (laughs) had to be built that way because they still do it but uh, uh, only I think uh, for ceremonial effects they use uh, at least the modern archers use the kind of equipment we use now Um, the first bows and the bows the English used made history with them was, uh, were made out of yew and they looked very much like this. They were narrow, they were flat in the back. The yew wood that uh, they used, and this is a yew wood bow, um, it, it was very springy material and I think it came mostly from Spain. They didn't have any or very little yew in England. But um, this wood was available to them. And the milk bows were made and they were crowned in the on the compression side on the inside and I don't know why it took uh, so long but it's only just 50 years ago that we discovered if that section were flat and the limb were wider the bows would be much more durable they wouldn't be break so often because the stresses would be spread evenly and uh, actually the, there were no change in the bow design over all those years until about 500 years ago The Turks came up with the idea of a composite bow. And this, you may not seem like a bow, but it is. It's built over a form backwards. The The center, there's a core section in there, same as the core section in all the bows that are made today. The back is sinew from animals heel or loin tendons from animals it's dried and they're glued on there on this wood centerpiece and the uh, compression I should this the sinew is on this side because the bow pulls around this way it spreads around and pulls just the opposite direction the um, sinew is on this side here the back side and then the core And on the uh, compression side is the horn of the Asiatic Buffalo. And this bow uh, shoots an arrow much, much faster. And uh, matter of fact, uh, even with our modern technology, we have only just recently, just in the last few years, uh, exceeded the flight distances that that the Turks shot an arrow. They shot arrows over 900 yards. And uh, it's taken us a long time to catch up with them, but we've, we've exceeded that distance now. But that was quite an advantage in a battle. Yeah, uh, If you could shoot an arrow further in the battles, many of them were fought with clouds of arrows. If you could shoot and reach your enemy before he, his equipment, before you're in range with his equipment, there's quite an advantage. And uh, the, the Turks did a great job with this boy, except they had to take their the days they're going to fight because they didn't have any waterproof glue and if it got too wet down they were out of business (laughs) and the war was over. Well from this um, stage the modern bow, the straight bow uh, like the English made out of you is now made usually laminated wood and fiberglass it was a war-born material and uh, how it happened how we happened to use fiberglass in the bows, Uh, a salesman for Corning Glass Company in Corning, New York, uh, dropped into, he was an archer, a bow hunter, dropped into our shop in Detroit in the very early 40s. And uh, he had a piece of fiberglass cloth. And uh, I had never seen or heard of it. And I was very surprised that uh, glass would be flexible like it was in the, to be woven into a cloth like this. But uh, I, I had not any great interest in it until he mentioned that it was uh, elastic. He said that it was elastic and it was very strong and it would stretch or compress and unlike any other material, would always return to its original position until it was overstressed and it would break. Well, that, uh, that interested me because uh, If it was elastic, maybe it's the material we needed for the back of our bows. And uh, so I asked him if he'd send me some of the the cloth when he got back. And he said he would, which he did. And uh, we were at that time doing some work for Chrysler. And uh, we knew the head chemist there, whose name was Don Swayze, who had developed a cement or glue for... uh, bonding or gluing rubber to metal. First time it ever was heard of. And it was used to uh, uh, um, make rubber motor mounts so that the vibrations of the engine would not be transmitted to the frame. And, of course, all motor mounts are made like that now. Well, I took this glass, uh, and he invented this, uh, This uh, they called it a cycle weld, cycle weld cement. 5509 was the name of it. I took this uh, fiberglass cloth over to Don Swayze and said, can you coat this with your uh, cycle weld cement and lay three or four layers together and uh, uh, cure it in the press. Cure it at 325 degrees he said, yeah, sure. So uh, he made us some, uh, the first uh, fiberglass uh, bow material. We put it on uh, some bows And we found out that uh, it worked fine on the extension side. It was a glass cloth, of course. It worked fine, did a beautiful job, made the bow unbreakable, but it was too strong for the, uh, or on, on on the compression side, the belly side, it wouldn't take it because it was a cloth and the little fibers being bent like that would kink and break. So, but it was a good backing material and, uh, <laughs> but it was too strong, and it, it chrysled the wood. It, it checked the wood. The wood wouldn't take the compression. So then, for a, um, well, it was a great backing material, and for uh, about a year, we put aluminum on the face of it. And here's, here's a bowl with that aluminum on it. The aluminum was stronger. We we cemented it to it with the cycle weld cement, and it did a pretty good job. It, uh, it uh, stayed straight and took the, uh, uh, did the job it was supposed to do. But in the meantime, uh, we got fiberglass thread or yarn and made, wrapped it on a wheel and cured it uh, while it was turning to get a unidirectional glass where we didn't have to use the cloth. All the fibers were running in the same direction. And uh, we got that on the bow and we found that did the job. So here, here's a bow with the glass on the both sides. And that's the way uh, practically all of the bows have been made uh, in the last 30 years. And it did a great job because uh, to the industry, uh, if you wanted a good bow up until this time, till fiberglass was available, uh, you had to seek out a fellow who probably had a workbench in his basement uh, and had a natural ability as a craftsman and an eye for beauty, you had to get older hold of him and, uh, and take, if you wanted a real good bow and say, hey, how about making me a bow? Well, he said, yeah, I'll make you a bow. And maybe sometimes he would say, well, you want to pick out the uh, billets? We're talking about you, bow, of course. We also did the same thing with Jose Jones. Uh Maybe he had some billets there, and you could pick the billets out like you'd pick out the green for a gun stock. And uh, he'd make your bow, and maybe two or three weeks or months, you, might, you would get it. And it was rather expensive, and uh, it, its life was questionable because uh, you never knew when they are going to break. Well, um, and to get the U material, there were people out in the West, you came mostly from Oregon. Up in the high mountains, the, uh, the best of you came at the higher altitudes and there were people who would, with a pack sack and a lunch kit, maybe even a tent, uh, 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 walk around those mountains looking for a yew tree that had a long enough section in it to make a half a bow. Bows, all the good bows were made in billets, were only half the length. They're uh, fishtails spliced in the middle. Um, it was very difficult to get a, a piece eight uh, six feet long without flaws in it. One of the problems was the yew wood uh, has a berry on it, and the uh, bears like the berries, and when they climb a, a yew tree to get the berries, they usually tear the, the sapwood up with their claws sliding down. So that was one of the problems, and the source of the wood was very questionable. So finally, when fiberglass came along, you could work it with a micrometer, you didn't have to follow the grain. And uh, you took a couple pieces of maple and the glue on the outside, and you had a bowl that you could put into production. And for the first time uh, in history, uh, we had a bowl that we could sell to the dealer at a discount so he could make a little money and he had it available to the to the consumer. And uh, it's really one of the things that caused, caused the rapid growth in archery and bow hunting that we've gone through in the last 30 years, that the availability of good equipment at a reasonable price from sporting good dealers. The, uh, the glass bow is very, very durable, much more durable than anything we had in the past. And uh, as I said, that's one of the reasons for the popularity of bow hunting today. Not too long ago, it was discovered, well actually the Turks discovered it, that if you curved the end of the bow limbs, the bow would be smoother to draw. It wouldn't tighten up so fast in the back end, and it would shoot an arrow faster. So we began to make bows, and this is only in the only in the early 30s that this we began to make bows with a what do you call a reef curve? And this is a non-working recurve it's stiff and the way the way that it, hap- the way that it pulls and and creates it uh, gives you uh, gives you better speed is because as you pull it back the bow becomes longer as the string leaves this recurve section here the bow becomes longer and that makes the weight pulling uh less at the back end of the draw and then not too long ago we began making the bow like many of them are made today, with a working recurve. This has the the maple core and the fiberglass on both sides, and this does a better job of smoothing up the back end of the draw and gives you more speed to the arrow. And that pretty much covers the bows of today, the conventional bows of today. And the next step, the biggest thing that's happened in archery and, a great many years is a compound bow. And that's the bows with the wheels on the ends and the cables. The handle is usually magnesium, could be wood. The limbs are usually laminated like the conventional longbow but could also be solid fiberglass. We have uh, cams or eccentrics on the end here. And what they do is, on on every other type of bow, it gets heavier as you pull it back. This bow, it gets easier as you pull it back, by as much as 50%. So you can have a 50-pound bow that pulls 50 pounds up here, and when you get back to full draw, to the length of the arrow, it drops off to 25 pounds, and it's quite an advantage because uh, it's very easy to hold 25 pounds as against holding 50 pounds while you're... uh, aiming and so this bow is uh, the compound bow is taking over and about uh, nine out of ten of the bows that are sold and used today are made like this it's interesting to note that the fiberglass technology the actual ability of preparing the fiberglass yarn uh, to its job that it needs to do in a bow uh, was developed by those of us here at bear archery quite a few years ago in the days of the uh, conventional bow. The stresses in the compound bow, the bow with the wheels and the cams, um, are very high. And without this uh, technology, without this already prepared and tested material, we would not have the compound bow. We would not have any materials to stand up uh, under the stresses that are developing. Those of us who are real happy that we've had a, a rather large part in this promotion. In the uh, heavy bows that are used for hunting, which are usually 50 pounds or more, the fact that the weight drops off and to maybe 50% or 30 or 40% and is easier to hold reminds me of uh, a bow a u-bow that we made in the very early early days of our archery business. I had a stave, a beautiful u-stave, full-length six-foot stave that Art Young had given me. And I had a bowyer by the name of Nell Scrumley and uh, we would occasionally take that stave and look at it and I was of sort of study it like you might look at a diamond that you're going to cut. Today it was valuable because it was so beautiful and it had extra value because it was young. So after a couple of years I finally got a bow made and the bow turned out to be 85 pounds. Well, 85 pounds is, is a lot of bow. And uh, you, when you would is finished, you would bow as finished and and you put a string on it and weigh it whatever that weight is if the bow is properly tilted and nicely made, that's the weight it it should stay at but 85 pounds was entirely too heavy and I first gave it to a friend of mine who lived up in West Branch he was a real husky uh, woodsman, outdoorsman and uh, he shot it for a while and then it wound up in the hands of a fellow over on the east side of Michigan. I've forgotten his name. And uh, he went hunting with it, went deer hunting with it one day. And uh, he saw a beautiful buck coming at an angle, uh, going to pass him real close, and he was going to get a good shot. So he waited till the deer's head was behind the big tree, and then he pulled his bull back. Well, the deer stopped. He said, I didn't know. He said it was so heavy, I couldn't hold it. But he said, I knew if I let it down, I couldn't get it back again. <laughs> so I never did get to the rest of the story, but uh, he didn't get the deer. And, and uh, that was one of the problems that we had with heavy bows that is eliminated by the use of the compound bow. You're, you're holding a much lighter weight. And if a deer stopped his head behind a tree, you can always wait. Again, referring to our early days in Detroit, where our business began in 1933, uh, the uh, Belgians—quite a, a number of people from Belgium in Detroit at that time, there still are. Yes, they, uh, in their own, in, in the old country, uh, used to have pop and jay shoots. Big pole went way up in the air and had arms on it, and the arms had little pointed spikes on it. And they'd make a little bird out of a wooden clothespin. They'd drill a hole through it and put it on there, and they had a, we put a little, some bird feathers on it, make it look like a bird. And you stood under the pole and shot straight up with an arrow that had a, a head on it about an inch in diameter. The head was made out of uh, uh, Asiatic buffalo horn. And uh, that really was uh, not so much an archery shooting match, more of a drinking match. Because you got one shot, you you, you drew a number when you went when you registered. You drew a number, and there might be 50 shooters. Maybe there's 100 shooters but a big tournament. And when your number came up, you got out there and you shot an arrow. And then uh, you didn't get turned again until everybody else had shot an arrow. In the meantime, there was. Usually a keg there, and, uh, <laughs> and it was quite an affair. Well, in Detroit, we couldn't. Uh, it, they had horizontal uh, archery ranges. Poppinjay Jay was the name of it. That's what they call the birds. A Poppin' Jay. It was a Jaybird, and uh, they shot horizontally in Detroit, indoors. And uh, there was there was a range there. I, I think the name of it was the Green Tavern, and they had this range downstairs. And the upstairs was was a bar, and you also threw darts up there. And it was quite a deal. Well, their bows, made in Belgium, were laminated bows made of three different kinds of woods. And uh, they were very long, six and some of them seven feet. And because they were so long and so hard to get around with in a car or a streetcar, they they had them take apart. It was a feral type thing, like you take a fish rod apart. Well... on a trip I made to Alaska uh, with the conventional longbow that I had to check as baggage along with my other gear, uh, I took a flight nonstop from Chicago to Anchorage. And uh, I got off the plane, but my archery equipment didn't. And (laughs) the stop in Anchorage was for fuel. And uh, my hunt was a fly-in hunt. And uh, I'm being left-handed, there were no other left-handers in the party, and I found those moves pretty hard to kill with rocks, so I determined that I would make a a bow that could be taken apart and put in a small enough case to go under my seat in the airplane. The first attempt was this one here. This is even before the fiberglass thing because that has a piece of vulcanized fiber on for the backing. And This is a laminated bow like the uh, Belgians use also with hickory. The light wood is is hickory in this bow and this face wood is Osage Orange, which is stronger than you and a harder wood. It also has the solid, non-working recurve. Well, the bow I made, this first design, comes apart like that. It's an iron hook that hooks into a piece of steel that's screwed and glued to the bow. And that was uh, all right. that worked good, except the only advantage was it was a take apart. And if half the bow broke, well what do you do? You uh, have to make the whole thing over again and, and match it up with the other half. And that didn't work out so good. So I finally decided that the handle of the bow the middle section of the bow being the major part of the bow and where most of the work was, that if I made a handle and limbs that would slide into it and be fastened into it, it'd be a pretty good deal and it would be uh, in a real small container, no problem getting it under the seat and real handy. And then you could also change limbs. You could have limbs for practice or limbs for your wife or son or whatnot and uh, limbs of different lengths, you, you take them right out and put them in. And this was the first model of that bow. Uh, these, these limbs came out, were held in with this little thing like a shotgun, just like taking a double barrel shotgun apart. You push a lever and two pieces come apart in your hand. No screws, bolts, nothing. And I took this boat to Africa in 1964, and uh, I shot an Asiatic Buffalo with it but this system this socket system was not right it was too expensive to make that was the main thing that was wrong with it so we came back to the workbench and a couple years later we came up with the final design where the you pull this little clip back and the limb comes right out the limb itself straddles a tongue or a groove in the handle there and it always goes back straight very easy to put together and no big problem and you can break it down into a case that's less than two feet long. Um, This is the bow that is the ultimate. There are lots of limbs that you bolt in like in the compound bow and there's all kinds of takedown but this is the the takedown everybody likes best and we still produce it. This is my personal hunting bow. I've been hunting with this bow since uh, 1965, when we changed from this kind of a experimental socket to this kind, which is uh, what we uh, still have today. Uh, I still shoot this bow, this conventional bow. A lot of people wonder why I don't shoot the compound bow. Well, I taught myself to shoot. And uh, when you teach yourself sports, sometimes without any instructions of exactly how to do it, you sometimes develop bad faults. And uh, I had a lot of them. And I I finally turned out to be a snap shooter. And uh, there are two kinds of snap shooters. I want to warn you about this. One of them is is when you're afflicted with a a problem, a mental problem uh, called freezing. And it, it seems silly to to say that there you have trouble. When you suffer from this uh, problem, it it seems silly to say that you cannot pull the ball all the way back and hold it while you're aiming and uh, you develop into being a snap shooter but most snap shooters never get the bowl back to the full draw most snap shooters who are suffering from this uh a little thing I'm talking about it's called freezing um never get the bowl back far enough so for that reason uh their aiming is haphazard and uh it doesn't impart all the velocity to the arrow that the bow would if it was pulled back all the way i went through that there was a couple of years when uh, uh i went hunting and i wished i wouldn't see a deer to shoot at because I, I knew that i wouldn't shoot well matter of fact i made a film our first deer hunting film uh, under that condition when i mean i lost a a couple of good chances at some deer i was hoping i wouldn't see a deer terrible isn't it? well uh, I, simp- I, I Because of this, I found that if I could concentrate uh, right from the top of my head to the end of my toes on the very, very center of the target, not the bullseye, but the center of the bullseye, and if I talked to myself at each shot and pulled the bow all the way back until I came to full draw, that uh, I, I had the thing pretty well licked. And I used a heavy bow, because the heavy bow helped me. This, this ball I've been shooting is 65 pounds. I've shot that all the time. Um, I, I found that if the bow is heavier, you get a better loose, and everything works out better. So I'm, I'm a snap shooter. And uh, I'm aiming when I'm drawing. It's like, you, you ask a pitcher, how does he throw the ball right across the outside corner of the plate? He doesn't have any mechanical way to do it. The, the, the body, the human body, is a great piece of equipment. And you can, by practice and training, teach it to do almost anything. And when you have practice shooting instinctively, and I mean instinctively, I don't mean uh, with a, a string walking or or uh, a gap system. I mean just by concentrating. Uh, from the end of your toes to the top of your head on a very tiny spot that you want to hit. It's amazing what the body can do and that's the way the pitcher does. He does it by practice. How does he, the outfielder, heave the ball in and hits the ground and into the catcher's mitt and the first hop when the fellow steals home? How does, he, how does the carpenter hit the nail on the head? It's all in, in, the, in the human body to be able to do that from practice. So, my style of shooting has always been, since uh, in the last four years, instinctive shooting and by the snap shooting method. And it's worked out for me. I don't recommend it to anybody because it takes a lot of practice and a lot of concentration. And you have to have, I think, a certain knack, a certain feel to be good at it, the same as there are good pitchers and there are bad pitchers, and there's fellows that can throw the ball to the home plate on the first bounce and the fellows that can't so uh, uh as i say i don't recommend it to anyone unless but if you want to go that route it's just great and you don't have to even think when uh, when you're faced with uh, an animal or that you want to shoot it. you don't have to think about it you just uh, go through it and after you've made a fine shot you can't tell anybody how you did it it just happens and uh uh, so along comes a compound bow, and I went bear hunting up in Ontario with uh, one of our very first compound bows. And I tell you, I couldn't hit anything. I found that when I tried to shoot a compound bow, um, snap shooting, when I came over that hump, I'd lost everything. I'd lost the feel. I had no idea where the air was gonna go, and I tried it for two days. And I finally finished the hunt by putting a sight on my bow, on the bow. And I could do a little better, but uh, I cannot shoot a compound bow. Concentration is, is the main thing. You, in shooting instinctively, you will never shoot a good tournament score because a human system, cannot stand a whole day of con- the kind of concentration that is needed to be a good instinctive shooter. The system can't stand it. It just, you'll blow up. You'll have a nervous breakdown if you try to try to do it. And I think that's uh, true with a, with a baseball pitcher too. He gets tired and, and he can't concentrate and they have to take him out and put another fellow in. Um, my system, of uh, a shooting instinctive, my snap shooting system, is aiming at the time I am drawing the bow and I don't stick my hand out and pull the bow back like this. The bow is pushed and the, and the hand comes back. And when my hand gets back here to the anchor, which is my, this finger in the corner of my mouth, the thing is gone. I cannot hold, if I try to hold, uh, I lose everything. I've lost it. The thing has gotta go when I get back there because that's when everything is right. The bow hand's taking care of the elevation and everything's working good. I'm not concerned about distances in yards. I'm concerned only in distances of feel. And I found that in in distances of feel and distances even that you step off, or where my yardage is marked, if there's low ground or high ground between you and the target, the distance is further than you thought it was, and you have to allow for that. But in my, if I shoot an arrow and let's say it drops low, I cannot make an adjustment. I have to shoot that arrow exactly the same way as I did the other one. But, and to get a little better elevation, I pull the arrow back a little further. That's the only way I can make a correction. And and it's a screwy kind of thing, but that's the way I have to work this thing out. But it works out so good for me. I've had such good luck with it. I would hate to uh, try to change another system, but maybe if I were younger, I would.
4: What's the best shot you ever made?
3: Oh, golly. I shot a running deer running past Knickerbocker out in Nebraska. The picture of it is three of us in the ground. We're making a drive, Um, driving up a a draw or a canyon, and uh, there were three of us on the stand. I was over on the left side. A friend of mine, Knickerbocker, was in the middle, (laughs) and he made the mistake of getting in a bunch of brush and somebody over the other edge, and this buck came through, very nice buck. Eight point, white tail. And he was really carrying the mail. And Nick couldn't, he got himself uh, into these bushes and he had no way to shoot and the deer was coming right towards where he was. And he saw Nick and he had to veer out around and I saw that Nick was never gonna get an arrow off. And I just instinctively threw one over there. It was about 60 yards. And the deer was on the dead run, and uh, I made a good shot on uh, That was luck. How I did it, I don't know. I couldn't put it, reconstruct the whole thing. I just know that I pulled up and shot. And my practice had, uh, in the past, had taken care of everything. The body, the human body, it's a great thing. I shot a, um, in a, in a tiger hunt in, in uh, India. <coughs> we, were, we had baited a tiger, and the tiger was known to be up in a draw. And I was up we were making a film, had a photographer. And the photographer and the Maharaja were in a blind up on a tree. This is a place where they they be tigers had been for hundreds of years. <laughs> and they had these, This was, he was up in the, in the blinds and they took some boards and made a place up in the tree. He was up there with the gun and uh, with the photographer, he was protecting the photographer. And I was in the top of a palm tree that had been cut off about 30 feet up. And uh, they, they put me up there in the ladder and then they took the ladder away so the tiger couldn't climb up there to, to keep me company. And then they had about 50 natives making the drive, and they were pounding on cans and shooting, muzzleloading guns and beating the trees with sticks and yelling. And it was a very steep wall canyon. On the other side, there was a stone wall that nothing could climb, and it was about 100 yards over there. I was looking over at some brush that was in the bottom, but here was this stone wall that went up a couple hundred feet. And I looked over there and saw this tiger. And he was pacing back and forth. And the Maharaja told me they had some hunters there on, on elephants and some other hunters up trees. The tiger had to be killed. This was serious business because these natives were out there driving and uh, you know, they want to get something out of it. And the tigers wouldn't be eating up their children or their cattle and sheep and goats. So the tiger had to be killed. It was, from that point of view, not a sporting thing. And I expected that uh, to hear somebody's gun go off real soon and the tiger was, would be dead and the hunt would be over because it was too far for me, and that, that didn't happen. And after, oh, I guess it, sounded like, it felt like a five minutes, but <laughs> probably 50 seconds, uh, I said to myself, well, maybe if I shoot an arrow, beyond him. Maybe he'll come my way. Rattling around the rocks here. And I shot an arrow that uh, I expected to go over him, but it went right through his lungs. And they had me a tiger. So <laughs> Normally, you don't take long shots like that. And uh, as you go hunting, it's uh, the fair chase enters into it. And you shouldn't take long shots with a bow or a gun for fear of not hitting the animal in the right place and, and crippling it. But we all do. We get excited, and, and uh, those kind of things happen. But you ask me, or I was asked, and I'm frequently asked, what's the longest shot I ever did? And uh, I shot a deer a little farther than that. But that was—I uh, normally don't shoot that far. I like to get real close, but sometimes you can get too close, so then you got a problem also. And I've been—I've done it both ways.
2: This episode would not be possible without the help from our friends at Bear Archery, Inside Archery, and Ted Nugent. Special thanks to all those guys who helped out to help make this episode possible. Remember, get outside, take a kid outdoors, do what Fred Bear wanted. Teach archery, teach the heritage, and join the hunt.
4: It's Jamie from the BHP Podcast. Wanted to take a moment to thank our awesome sponsors, Skullhooker Racks Inc., Vanguard Outdoors, Beyond the Ears, Crossman, and Stealth Cam. These sponsors are the rock behind our awesome podcast. Make sure and check them out.
2: Hey, guys. Can't get enough of the bone plant podcast? You need more episodes? Well, check us out on Patreon.com. Go to patreon.com slash to join the Golden Arrow Club and get exclusive access to new episodes every week.
4: Celebrating the rich tradition of bow hunting for over 31 years, Vanguard is proud to be the official optic and hunting pack of Bowhunter Planet.
2: Thanks so much for listening to the Bowhunter Planet podcast online at bowhunterplanet.com with your host, Team BHP. Check us out on Facebook at Bowhunter Planet. We'll catch you next time.
4: This is the story of the one.